This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the AEW Rampage Review. I'm Michael Sidgwick, joined by fellow Dadly Boy, Michael Hamflit to discuss everything that happened on this Friday's show. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure to subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts. We preview and review AEW Rampage, Dynamite, Raw, SmackDown, NXT 2.0, premium live events, pay-per-views. We have wrestler interviews, roundtable discussions, and a roundup of the week complete with a bloody good quiz, of course. Hamflit, what are your broad thoughts on this week's Rampage? Was it a 7 out of 10? <laughs> I, I don't have many thoughts broad or otherwise in truth it was a, what it was unfortunately was a victim of the prior week's rampage um i don't want to say success but the bombastic presentation of a two-hour rampage in um obviously the arthur ash setting and the fact that it was quite like i enjoyed the wackiness of grand slam rampage more than i did the seriousness of grand slam dynamite so i was on a bit of a high and I knew, and I told myself that, well, this is not the every week. This is just an, an, like an anomaly of a week. And then this was, but as a result, this was more of a crushing return to Rampage's form. Like there was very little, like there was one takeaway, which I think we'll probably both share in our enthusiasm for. But otherwise, it's just, it's a problem that's not getting fixed. I don't like hearing myself moan about the same problem that AW perhaps don't even think is a problem. Um, you can't put the blame on the fans. You can't put the blame on the talent. You can't put the blame on the booking, but then enough people will tell you, well, you're wrong and here's why for a bunch of boring objective measures. And it, it feels a bit like a trap. Rampage feels like a trap. It, for me, the way I was watching this, for me, it really felt like if Dynamite was great this week, just in great, like, imperial form as always, I'd think, you know what, this is a nice little hour of a Saturday morning. So with two matches in particular, I thought, you know what, I'm having a bit of goddamn fun with this. But ultimately, it just followed a bad Dynamite. That wasn't just a bad Dynamite in and of itself. It really brought into focus so many core booking and presentation problems with AEW on the whole. So this didn't feel like a nice compliment to a more important and vital show. It just felt like a bit of fun that maybe papered over the cracks. It was just a nice time, but it mostly existed. Anyway, the match, uh, sorry, the show started with the three-way, imagine that, world title match with the acclaimed defending against uh, the Butcher and the Blade. 
There was some nice stuff earlier. I'm not going to go through the recaps and the dramatic readings because Will Bourne, who's just feeling a little bit off today, is so much better at it than I am. I'm more of an analyst more than a presenter. I hope the mega fans will forgive me for that. And um, the general story of the match is that there's obviously their dissension, sorry, uh, between the Butcher and the Blade and the private party. And there's some decent stuff to start off, particularly on the part of um, Isaiah Cassidy, who does a really nice pose counter to an Anthony Bones kick. Um, it descends into a melee um, just as well Jim Ross was calling it because he really didn't like that, which sucked the <laughs> life and the fun and the vibe out of me. I would describe this as a typical AEW spot fest adjacent match that just didn't really feel particularly tight and dramatic. The saves weren't really crisp and acute. The actual action wasn't overly spectacular and breathless. It just kind of existed and it wasn't, it was inoffensive. There were certain elements of the work that were quite sloppy on the part of um, Private Party in particular, who just haven't feel like they've clicked for some time, the Butcher and the Blade, some of their stuff, and I'm glad Andy Murray's not an earshot, can feel a little bit, I don't know, like it just didn't feel like, they look harder than they wrestle at times, mm -hmm. and I've got a bit of a, a an indication, a sense of that as well. And in the end, the acclaimed win after um, capitalising on some dissension, and they, at the very least they appeared as clear winners, they didn't steal one, or anything like that. Um, but that was about it. What were your thoughts? All of this was less than ideal, but we kind of knew this going in. Um, the acclaimed offering an open challenge could have uh, generated like a straight two-on-two -two tag match where they've either got to prove that they weren't being uh, arrogant as new champions or overconfident or cocky, and they got it out as new, kind of newly minted baby faces. They got out the first title shot with a hard-fought win that proves that the open challenge isn't based on cockiness, it's based on confidence. There's nothing wrong in that. But as a result, the what you had here instead was then, and I hate this when you have this in triple threats, that feeling where the act you're supposed to be focused on are the spare parts in somebody else's story. And that for the acclaimed as a first title defense, that was a real misfire. And that was what I felt more than anything else. Look, the acclaimed, like, they're not going to give you a string of five-star classics like the Young Bucks. They're not going to, I would say, even at the moment, like um, Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus did, give you a string of long babyface defenses with another story, like with a bigger story playing out in the background, like what you had with Christian. It's something else entirely. And you can't follow either of those patterns that we've seen in the tag division. You need something new. You need to figure out, so you need to look at the acclaimed and shape the booking of them, as obvious as this might sound, around them. You need to decide how it is that you present them. And like, I think National Scissoring Day maybe trivialised what people fell in love with, but at the very least it presents them on Dynamite as being a hot act worthy of your focus. I'd have maybe left this off entirely and had National Scissoring Day be the celebration and that be used to set up the first defence, even if the first defence was going to be the rubber match with Swerve and Our Glory. This was not their match. This was somebody else's. And because nobody really cared, well, I don't and you don't, and, and plenty of people we speak to don't particularly care about dissension in the AFO ranks, like the acclaim just got to be set dressing for that. So the match was fine. There's very little to talk about, but I was like, I was pretty disgruntled with the, the booking and the usage of them here. Yeah, it's just basically a waste of time. I had a kind of a love-hate relationship with the um, the first backstage segment that followed. Uh, it was an interview with uh, Gun Club and Stokely Hathaway, conducted by Lexi Nair. And um, I loved Stokely Hathaway's um, facials in the background. There is such a talent 
there. And sometimes when you see a glimpse of it, it really is thrilling. So that was good. Um, what was less good was that um, the Gun Club mocked um, literally every single tag title that FTR are currently in possession of. And then they hung a lantern on the idea that they've been number one contenders forever. And that doesn't matter by saying that we're just going to do what everybody else does, go for the... Um, the tag team titles that people do care about and just leave FTR to not go for them because they get bypassed every single time. I don't understand why you would do this. Hmm. Even if we're going to get FTR, beat the gun club and then fight the acclaimed at full gear, I wouldn't along the way, when you are trying to build to that match, rubbish the idea of achievement have a laugh at the idea of things that you're meant to be invested in. It's one thing to be on the pulse of your audience, but you this isn't a joke to get in on. People are legitimately getting annoyed by the booking of FTR. So it wasn't reassuring. And in fact, it was just a little bit dumb for me. This. Do you know what stuck out to me here was that Stokely Hathaway was used for, basically, it's a tricky political thing if you want to start burying other companies' belts on your show. So Stokely Hathaway was used as the voice of reason. He's like, he's managing these two pillocks who were going to mock the belts, but he's there to like, level the playing field a little bit and say, well, no, there's still the IWGP tag titles and, you know, there's still the AAA tag belts and that. That is how you would describe Triple H doing a wrong thing to do a right thing afterwards. Yeah. yeah. And, like, it's, I'd, I found that such a needless thing. Like, by all means, set up this FTR match, but don't, like, have the... Uh, the gun clubs are idiots. We know this. But if you need to go to the trouble of having somebody in there to right a wrong, just don't commit the wrong in the first place. And, yeah, I understand the FTR setup as well, but... Is it? Do you have your finger on your on the pulse? If you're taking the piss out of something that like people really wanted to invest in, in terms of the rankings, well, it's, a, it's a really tricky one. That because I understand that they probably want to feel like they're connecting more FTR as baby faces and the and through that the audience. But I think they've misread just how disappointed people are in the like the the scope of the disappointment amongst the fan base that the rankings aren't being adhered to. I think the idea here, and I agree, is not that they've got the finger on the pulse, is that, well, they kind of do, because I think this is the first step, you know, let it play out and all the rest of it, the first step of putting FTR back into contention, the fact that they are making canon this meme that has kind of suffocated the tag team division, despite its various highs, for the last several months. So I think them making it, and I hate this expression, a thing, mm. is basically them trying to reassure the audience that, look, we know what you know, we think what you think, and in fact, we are taking steps to address it, just bear with us on the story, and here are two complete dickhead foils to take the heat from the lack of attention being paid to the rankings and FTR as an act. If this is not heading in that direction, then they absolutely cannot get away with this at all, and in fact, I wouldn't have done it in the first place. Um, why? They did this on Wednesday as well. Why would you address criticisms of your show rather than just resolving them on your show. It yeah. just makes no sense to me. They did the same thing with the women's division. Do you want to do it with two separate divisions that have got a title to represent them, but then what doesn't in AEW these days, I guess. And we get the, uh, the interaction, I can't believe we haven't had yet, actually, where Lexi Nair has an interview with Jay Cargill. It's all very brief. Of course, it's interrupted, which is a little bit annoying. Um, But... It's quite funny because Jade Cargill is just absolutely fed up of having no competition whatsoever. This has been a bit of a thread, and I think they've picked it up with the idea that Nyla Rose is meant to embody competition, even though her win-loss record isn't particularly impressive of late. But, you know, she's got the legacy, she's got the history, she's got the, the credit, 
um, the credibility, if you like. Um, so basically, it sets up Rhodes versus Cargill with the idea being that they had a tag, but Cargill only bested or downed uh, Marina Shafir, and Rose is still not someone that Cargill has taken down yet. Yeah, it's I. Uh, it's sort of one thing. It's a, a bit of give and take here, I suppose. If like I really like the match. Everyone presumably really likes this match here. This pairing. Um, it's a big win for Jade Cargill when they are clearly running out of steam in ways to make these B-show opponents feel like threats. Um, the last couple, it's felt very forced. And we're all, I think this is one of them situations where we're all agreeing to be complicit in the story rather than just actually being like going along for the ride, you know, rather than actually being emotionally invested in it. And Nyla Rose is maybe the perfect, like she kind of exemplifies that. That's a match you want to watch, but I have absolutely no doubt over the winner. And she's patter, she's really funny. I would like this to drive Nyla Rose's baby face turn. And I don't think that's um like I don't think that's pie in the sky either, because Shafir and Nyla Rose could come and interrupt a Jade Cargill segment, and Nyla Rose could basically talk herself into a title shot. And yet it isn't brought up that none of these women on screen featured in the everybody out town hall meeting on Wednesday night. Like it's it's still so scattershot at the moment that these could feature in a title program on Rampage. I know it's the TBS title and the TNT title, uh, the, the world title, sorry, but there's not really supposed to be any difference between the two. Like, we're never supposed to have received Jade as a lesser than to the AEW World Women's Champion. So I, I don't really, I don't think this feels like a fix to the division. It's just a match I quite fancy. Yeah, I quite fancy the match. If they can book around each performer's limitations, this could be a really fun, like, Blockbuster five minutes, like a sort of a sub Goldberg Lesnar layout. Mm. Like, don't dare try to do holds or transition moves or stalling, no. all the rest of it. Just make it an absolute blockbuster prize fight. And I think you really got something here. But what have you ultimately got? As you said, you don't have this big time feeling. You don't have the sense that something monumental is going to happen or it's going to end or whatever. It's just a bit of fun with two performers I like. And, you know, it's. It's fine, I guess. I'm just not that interested. Um, on the subject of not being particularly interested, Lee Moriarty absolutely squashes Fuego Del Sol in, by AEW standards, one of the most predictable matches you'll ever see. But look, you have to do this. The idea is to put some really fun and vital stuff on your show alongside it. They didn't do that, so it just brings into focus that it's just an inessential B-show. But, you know, Lee Moriarty is an absolutely tremendous talent. He looked like Fuego Del Sol sold very well for his stuff for how long it lasted. Um, Lee Moriarty stuff looks genuinely really quite dangerous. I like his new cocky attitude. Um, he's doing quite well with a, with a hair dye and his completely different body language and the, the good snap that he's putting in at these submissions yeah. to get himself over ahead of a presumed showdown with um, Daniel Garcia imminently. Um, there's not much else to say, is there? No. Um... I don't, there isn't, but I don't particularly hate it. I think there is a place on Rampage for that kind of uh, the dark, dark elevation adjacent win because at least Rampage gives you more visibility. Lee Moriarty, and I'm not going to check cage match as we have this conversation, could have done this match 10 times over on the YouTube shows and I wouldn't necessarily know about it. So Rampage, if nothing else, if it's only existing to put people's names in your head for something bigger that's coming. I kind of welcome more stuff like this. Like this wasn't, like the match itself wasn't particularly angle heavy other than the little beat down at the end. There's a, there's a dominant wrestler that should be more in your thoughts than the other. Yeah. That's just now to say about the show, is there? Not a lot. <laughs> now to say 
but there is something to say because I'm going to bury something here. Like, they did it on Dynamite. They've done it again on Rampage. And my God, if there's one thing I want to see less of, it's what follows. And what they've done is they've doubled the fun. Lexi Nair interviews Adam Page and the rest of the Dark Order, at least at Uno and Ten, I think it was. Then erupted, of course, by Andrade and Jose, the assistant. This is when you get the, um, the wild challenge um, of Andrade challenging Ten for a match on the um, anniversary or something to do with Brody Lee passing on the mask um, to Ten and sort of a protege gimmick. And he says, you put that on the line. Um, but and Ten said, yes, I will do that, but you have to leave if you lose. So it's kind of a high-stakes match for Rampage, so that does address a complaint. Uh, me and you've got the same opinion. You articulated on Twitter, so I'll get your thoughts on that. But then Ethan Page and Stokely interrupt mm. Andrade and Jose to get a dig in about um, contract tampering. Yeah. Um, to, uh, Ethan Page has something to the effect of, you know, I think they might go to Matt Hardy, you know, because they're tampering with the contract. Now, my, I've got several pet peeves with AEW at the moment, most prominent of which is the idea that they're going to do a general frigging manager in terms of page, the impromptu matches. But a long-standing one for me is the backstage interview interruptions. I've talked constantly, and again, I'm as bored of saying this as you are as listening, but unless they fix it and come up with a better way to drive the storylines, I'm going to continue belt, uh, pelting it. The idea that they're all just, the entire roster is all assembled in one tiny area, like a Where's Wally kind of scenario is just stupid to me if you apply any kind of critical thought to what this must look like in a real in a real fictional world it's just killing me now there's like the line has got longer of people waiting to interrupt people on the one day a week where they're allowed to interact which just itself makes the show feel fake why are they doing interrupted interruptions if you can hear by the way listeners any kind of strange background noise and if you've noticed the quality of the call isn't what it is Sorry, we've got some electrical works happening at Walk Culture Studios. We're on a video chat rather than being able to share these yeah. microphones. Yeah. Yeah. I I work backwards on this. Um, you know, one of my issues with the, the tampering line, because for starters, anyone that listens to our podcast will know that we've thought that dig's been in there for weeks with the content of the story. So it's yet again more tell not show. Yeah, like loads of exposition and tell not show from AEW. And one of the reasons why we've and it's not exclusive to us, far from it, why everybody has picked on WWE's need for exposition in the dialogue, in the script, and the conversation between the characters over the decades at this point is not just because it sounds a bit fake and a bit thick, because there might be somebody in the back that needs it spelling out for them, right? Just watch the Fed, then. Just watch the Fed. It's because it's because if the wrestlers themselves watch the show, job done. Yeah. Like, if wrestlers sit and watch Rampage, as we assume they're supposed to do, it's part of their workplace, then they will hear the mention of contract tampering and thus now know what's going on. And Matt Hardy will be required to address this and Private Party will be required to react to this. If at any point those characters don't react to what's been said on screen, then they're thicker than we are, which is the worst case scenario. Like they've got to still, they, they're the ones that are supposed to be on the up and up of things happening in their own lives. The camera, AW's whole principle about their no invisible cameras backstage was to stop stuff like this and now they're just dropping it into interviews that are happening on main in the middle of a rampage uh, that was the whole point the invisible camera stuff was never so that the young bucks and don Callis could make cute gags it was to lift something that completely did not make sense out and away so now the camera is visible and they're doing it anyway yeah i find that really like 
the tampering thing is like the, the, the petty WWE stuff, but like it's more the it's more the stupidity of what it represents than the actual subject matter that bothers me there. Well, that's the thing. It's again, this company can't stop taking L's on these minor notes at the minute because, as you said, the idea of not doing the invisible camera is to show up WWE's product is even more contrived and fake as it actually is. But when you're getting a petty WWE dig in amid this kind of contrivance, you're not seeing the wood for the trees here. The priorities are completely out of whack. What you're doing is you are doing something that, if you again, if you apply a little bit of critical thought to it, it's as fake and as plot holy as anything WWE does. You just happen to have it framed as an interview that's being broadcast. There's no real fundamental difference. And if anything, you're being as stupid as WWE while taking the piss out of their practices. It's all very, very, very dumb. And the interruption. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. ...to the interruptions. Just stop it. Go back, watch what the show was like when it was good, and just take a week off Tony and do that with your spare time because it's starting to really, really rankle with me. Now, you might have noticed my tone and my mood for this podcast over the past week has been a little bit uh, low on AEW. A lot of fun stuff um, follows next. So, please... oh, Sorry, Sage. Can we bash the Andrade stuff first then? Is that all right? Because I yeah, want to be sure. It, I did tweet about this, but I feel like we haven't had a chance to speak about this over the desks or anything yet. So why not use our jobs as podcasters to do it? Um, I, I think this is all really thick. This Andrade 10 mask stuff, right? For a start, like having 10 in a mask match, I know they've attached a bit of sentiment with the Brody Lee element here, but this is like Vader wrestling that mask mask against Kane when we've seen his face 100 million times. Like 10's face, it's pretty much just a working thing at this point. So they're, they're lying to you by telling us that these are stakes when they're not. And the Andrade thing, to stretch beyond that, it's, it's, I'll put it online, but like the last few weeks, this free Andrade campaign he's been running that has actively and like knowingly divided up the audience to, between people that want what's best for what they think Andrade needs in real life versus the current locker room state of AW. It's triggered all sorts of conversations about are we in this continued period of post all out chaos? Is there 
what's the attitude like is it a thing on andrade it's encouraging people to have all sorts of quite um like well yeah like divisive takes and engaging a culture war we saw how um malachi black like was vague in one sense and then got angry when people speculated on what he was vague about and then it becomes a conversation about mental health which makes it incredibly difficult to like i, I just I think there's a lot of having your cake and eating it going around with this type of stuff at the moment. And if Andrade really has worked the Twitter bit for the benefit of a match, then he's thick because anyone that's with him should be wanting him to kayfabe lose in order yeah. to... So that doesn't make any sense in terms of the investment of a wrestling match. If all of this was a work to apply the stakes to this, that doesn't work because Andrade needs to lose for him to get what he wants. I find this so overthought and he i think asked the question as well he got asked yeah to do that step he didn't outright say it himself so that just makes it more contrived on top of everything i really don't like that I, I don't particularly care for this idea that if you know like if wrestlers are unhappy within AEW, i don't consider it any different than when we would have been calling for wwe to release they should leave they should just let them bloody leave independent contractors and this this shines like the worst possible light on AEW because it reminds you that they've basically engaged in the same hiring practices that WWE do. They have independent contractors that they lock down and give no power to. You don't want to think that of AEW because you want to believe they can do things differently. And every single one of these teases and, oh, what's going on with this guy and this guy just brings that conversation up. And I do not like it being folded into angles, stories, and question marks over, over wrestlers on television. If it's going to be a real-life thing, I want it to be real because... The last thing you want is to not be sympathetic to a wrestler's plight. They're not the powerful people in these relationships. No, absolutely not. I need to um, bear with me. I'm going to try and do a little bit of research here because this is uh, this Andrade thing um, is adjacent to one of the stupidest things that happened. I think it was either very early this year or last year. I think it was NWA effectively booked a loser stays in town. Right. Match. It was Thunder Rosa versus, bear with me, yes. So it was Camille and Thunder Rosa, right? And they were about to have a match. And uh, and the idea was if Thunder Rosa lost, she could only work for the NWA in future. Now, that was so stupid because the idea was, right, okay, the NWA are a complete non-entity. Um, no one really watches it. Everyone's kind of desperate to see more of Thunder Rosa. Remember those days? Genuinely, the, the crack was, oh, Thunder Rose has been great on her fleeting appearances in AEW. Wouldn't it be such a great benefit to her career and this division if they can just cut the NWA part out and just have her in AEW? And, well, that's what happens when you've got a fundamental disinterest in promoting women's wrestling because that, in fact, did happen and changed almost less than nothing, in fact. <laughs> the idea that the NWA booked this match of, no, nope, you're not going anywhere. You have to stay here if... You, it's like a punishment with the <laughs> wrestle for the promotion. And it's not as bad as that. But the idea that Andrade is flirting with the idea that he kind of wants out. You can't book a loser leaves town match. The idea, the principal idea behind which is, oh uh, man, you're going to miss out on the money. You're going to miss out on the getting the biggest titles you can possibly get. You're going to miss out on the payday. You're going to miss out on the fame and all, all the rest of it. You have to leave town if you lose that. It's the ultimate. Oh, I don't want to do that. It's the best show in town. The idea that Andrade might be happy about losing this yeah. is absolutely ridiculously thick for me. I it's I, I just and there was a there was another side as there always is. There was like a debate that was saying no. Well, it's stakes. Like 
that you pointed this out to me and I'm seeing a lot more of it. This weird trend of the podcasters. Have you noticed this? Yeah. The podcasters asked for stakes. And I don't know if that's particularly referring to us. It's probably not. It's probably Dave and Brian or whatever. But like, like the podcasters apparently asked Rampage matches to mean something. And then it's this sort of like, are you not entertained? Are you not getting what you want? No. Like stakes, stakes, stakes are belts that mean something. The stakes existed the day that you launched a wrestling company with three titles. Those are the stakes. Make the belts mean something. Make the feeds of the belts mean just as much. And that's what people are asking for. Not this absolute nonsense that folds in a terrible online element as well. Yeah. Like there's no nuance to that. You got what you want, didn't you? No. That's just incomplete bad faith. Incomplete bad faith. But the rest of the show I thought was pretty damn good. And I had fun watching it with a cup of tea on Saturday morning. It kicked into gear with um, Willow Nightingale versus um, Jamie Hayter, which I just thought was such a fabulous TV match. Because it's I've used the analogy, right, where, and it's very hack, and I'm sorry, but the idea is that when AEW starts to do things that annoy you, it's and you start to be open to criticising it more, and you're just kind of used to it. It's like when your partner kind of does things that annoy you. Not my current wife, of course, but previous relationships I've had, obviously, where some of the quirks are a bit like, all right, okay, you know, you can knock that one on the head if you like. And it just brings into focus where you feel like a little bit more emboldened to criticize something. Like, well, actually, that thing I was being nice about, it's actually starting to do my head in. I was getting a little bit of that with Britt Baker's complete insistence on doing something with the ringside camera in every single one of her appearances. And yet I thought this was the best Dr. Britt Baker performance in absolutely forever. She was so much fun in and around what I thought was a really compact, physical little TV ripper where she's cheating because hate has distracted the referee and just grinding at um, Willow Nightingale's ankles. And then she gets caught by the ringside camera. But instead of like going, oh, what are you going to do about it? The referee didn't see. She's a little bit like demure about it. And she's like, oh, sorry. Yeah. She just waves. But that's great because it informs the next bit because she doesn't want to be this like extravagant, oh, I'm Dr. Britt Baker. I'm the top star. I get caught cheating by the ringside camera. Who cares? I'm such a big star. Because she's afraid of Willow, Night- White- Willow Nightingale. Hence why when she gets spooked by her later in the match, she squeals. What an fantastic bit of rare, elusive stuff on the outside, actually meaning something to the story, to the people involved in the match. Um, I just thought it was really well done. They've been getting pelters, and deservedly so, for just the amount of chicanery that goes on on the outside. But I thought this was really effective in putting yeah. Nightingale over and just creating an entertaining bit of a segment of TV. The match itself, I thought, was really fun. Um, hater is just so hard hitting. She's got a big boot. It's like, how do you get it in the air that high? <laughs> so formidable. It looks like if you're going to take anything from Jamie Hater, you're just going to have a pretty bad day at work. She just, everything she does looks legitimate. There were certain moments where I was just wincing at the physicality. I didn't muck about. They just knew exactly what kind of match they needed to have. And I got a bit of a gasp at the finish when at the finish, basically, after some interference. Uh, Willow Nightingale's on the top row. Jamie Hayden just grabs her, and it was sort of an avalanche German. But when I see, well, sorry, when I saw Nightingale practically on her shoulders, or like really high in the air, I'm thinking, Jesus, watch out for her neck. Um, but the actual finish was great, and the short arm clothesline just can, like looked like it knocked the lights out. I had a lot of fun watching this, and Jamie Hayden should be on TV every single week. If the rankings don't matter. That's the thing. Back 
in the glory days. I'm prepared to call them the glory days now. The reason why, oh, they don't want to do this much, or they're not doing this much yet, or they can't give this person too many wins yet, is because they had this kind of robust ranking system where if you go and win five matches on telly, that's it. You're locked in visually as number one contender, and you kind of have to do a match you maybe don't want to book yet because you've got other things to do first. If there's no rankings, that excuse is completely out the window. Have Jamie Hayter on TV, make the crowd fall in love with her, build her up as a threat, put great matches on TV because this wasn't great, but it was so much fun. Yeah, I, I echo all of that. I, um, I love wrestling for the way in which it can surprise you in this way. And like the, the Jamie Hayter. Uh, like the recent ascendancy of Jamie Hayter beyond the heavy in the background that we know is eventually going to split from Britt Breaker to becoming somebody that, like the question now isn't, well, he's going to be the babyface when these two split. The question, thankfully, is uh, when is Jamie Hayter going to turn babyface officially? And that's the right question to be asking. And I kind of admire AW now in hindsight for realising that they had to stagger this while you were still doing Wardlow MJF. But they had to not hit pause on it completely, but I had to stagger out this. And now we've entered the probably the most exciting point of a story like this, where you get to see Hater like just amass a ton of evidence that she can break out on her own and that Britt Baker needs her way more than she needs Britt Baker at this point. We've seen it where they've kind of had to collide in matches together. And this feels like the, the logical next step of that. I also love Britt Baker in this because all the sort of all the bothering and the mithering she was doing on at ringside was as much obviously to um you know to interfere and to be a heel but to convince jamie hater that she needs her you know there's a little bit of gaslighting going on from Britt baker as the heel and rebel as a sidekick you know when like haters celebrating in the end Britt baker is wrapping her arms around hater in this way of like i need you i love you aren't we together aren't we together the insecurity now lies with her yeah we are now we are not now getting to see this thing that Britt baker has no idea about we're seeing that Britt Baker too understands that this is on thin ice and it's her job to try and repair that. And I love that character detail because I just, whenever you see these stories play out, there comes a point where the wrestler that has no idea that there's a problem loses credibility. Yes. You kind of have it with Roman Reigns and the bloodline where he always has to, at least you've got to see in his acting that he's mindful that Sami Zayn might not be quite right, but I'll take him for now. And I think Britt Baker here was very, very aware that time was up with Jamie Hayter and now it's her attempting to rebuild something that we can see has gone too far and it's just about delaying that, delaying that, delaying that and if we have it in the form of these matches fantastic, I thought this was a really risky booking because Willow Nightingale yeah. has been such a like a babyface ball of energy every time she's worked and it hasn't mattered that she's losing because every defeat has felt like a defeat upwards every loss has felt like they're one step closer to a job that she sorely deserves on this roster and this was more of that, but this was the best example of it. So it was a great night for Willow Nightingale and the fact that she could be a babyface that never inadvertently compromised what they're doing with this Hater-Baker angle. In reality, what's happened here is Jamie Hater has had her most memorable standout babyface singles performance to date while she's still working alongside Brit. So this like, this has probably been the most successful element of Hater's push yet. I'd like, I'm with you. I want to see her work a singles match at least once a week on one of the two shows so that once a week you are told that Britt Baker's should be in her rear view. Like Britt Baker is now, Britt Baker needs her. Yeah. And I like the story and the quality of the work is almost feeling assured. Jamie Hayter versus Tony Storm is an eliminator match just waiting to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I'd really like to see that. But the problem is I've already beat uh, Tony Storm. So, <sighs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah. 
the way they book their bloody women, eh? Absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. Um, so we get a little promo for Wardjo. Nothing much, but it just tells you that they're a kind of a tag yeah. team now, which is weird. Simple singles champions. Just been off ROH. Just been off ROH for God's sake. There's a um, unification match coming there. Like, I know they need, I know will need titles, but like... Oh, so, but you could just not do a tag team to get there. We've yeah, been here right. before. We've been here before. Um, we'll get a few more deals about um continuation from stuff that happened on uh dynamite where strickland at the rolling loud music festival expresses his disgust that they lost the tag team titles in that way and um, teasing that they might interrupt national scissoring day and interruption <laughs> uh, then we get a promo for the imminent world title match between hangman page and moxley page says that he will have the AEW fans behind him um, but then he's informed that the match is in Cincinnati, which is quite a funny bit. Um, he's still really good at that self-deprecation thing, um, which I really like. And then we get some announcements for next week's Dynamite and Battle of the Belts, more multi-women's tag team match deals with the women, it, as long as it's not transformed into something else, because that's the new bar with some kind yeah. of ridiculous um, stipulation. Jesus Christ, I'm not looking forward to that. And then... We've done the button, but well, it's been enough burying AEW for so much because this was a decent little main event between Rush and John Silver. Um, structurally, I wouldn't say it was anything daring or interesting. You basically got Rush being the big league bully and taking the piss out of John Silver and in and as it transpires, underestimating John Silver, who goes on his really cool sort of um blistering comeback sequence um before getting beat through some interference and again have some discipline. I like John Silver a lot, in the ring at least. I think he's fantastic. I don't need him to be cheated out of a match when you all go preserve that device for when it really matters. Otherwise, you just get this horrible WWE adjacent feeling that you're protecting everyone, and that's no good. I want tears in this company now, and it's not helped when John Silver has to be screwed out of a match by someone at ringside. It just doesn't work for me at all. Um, but basically, Rush wins. There's some really, really nice physicality in this match. John Silver takes a piss out of Rush's pose. It's all quite fun. But ultimately, it's one of those where if you watch it with your eyes closed, you get loads out of it because they beat the crap out of each other. And if nothing else, the physicality in this match did more to get me on the hook for Rush versus Hangman, uh, sorry, Rush versus Hangman Page because they are going to really, really hurt each other. And I can't wait for that. Yeah. Um... I thought this match was all right, but I thought it was... I know that Rampage is a, a different beast because a lot of the time, obviously, you've got to think about how you structure the show based not on what Rampage will look like, but based on how well it follows Dynamite for the live crowd that have just had Dynamite plus Elevation or whatever it is that they've already had to sit through. Um, where this match... Suff- like I like this. So I haven't been that fussed about Silver for a while. And to be fair, he hasn't had like a world of chances since... He really blew up with the dark order. What feels like, like what well, is coming off for two years ago now? I guess when he really was having his moments. Roosh, on the other hand, um, has just earned his contract. So I kind of, I thought there was something more in this that they never really arrived at. But again, it's like it's that rampage main event thing. You, if you go too hard in that, and then it's completely forgotten about. Was it a waste of time? Was it a waste of your bump card? I, I don't know. I also think this was a structural thing. I'd have. Easy to say, Captain Hindsight and all that. I'd have main evented with either Hater um, and Willow Nightingale or the tag title match. This was a little bit undone by how out of place it felt. As the, I know the Rampage main event doesn't mean quite as much as, say, the Dynamite main event, but this was possibly the wrong place on the card for this kind of match as well. I felt it from the fans. I just 
Like, and I'm sure we'll like, you know, you'll throw this back in my face over a WWE. Oh, well, don't worry, I will. Over a WWE review. But, you know, it's obviously an acknowledged rampage problem that on these taped shows when crowds are flagging. The contrast get, does exist. You get the sound sweetening or you get the, the quiet audience. And ultimately, AEW, are, the booking remains at fault. Like Whenever we analyze wrestling shows, it's always, the core of it is always the booking. If something's good or it's well received, it's because of good booking. If it's not, it's because of bad. And there's just not, you can feel it in the venues that there's just not as much investment in any of these, not just this match, but the stories spinning off this match that the fans weren't, they were sort of popping at the cool moves, but they didn't really care who won and lost, which like sort of adds credence to your point of was this tonight really to set up protecting John Silver when they wouldn't have been bothered if even if he'd have beaten Roosh? No, that's a like thing. It, that, that felt particularly superfluous. I just feel like Silver is one of so many kind of crowd favourites who've been built to a certain level and they've connected with the crowds and they've done well and Tony Khan's done well to get them to that point. Because I've gone off John Silver, have you? Yeah. Gone off half your roster, have you? I think at this point, we've simply been asked to invest in far too many people. And when it's like, well, they've plateaued now, what do you want me to do about it when they're in the ring? Like, what do you really honestly expect me as a capital P podcaster or the audience? It's like, well, we know his level now. This is it. And it's fine for what it is, but I'm not full-throated, full-hearted into it. Um, but, you know, it depends, I guess, on your perspective at this point. Was this a fun, really well-worked match? Yes, it was. Is that enough for you, knowing what AEW is capable of? For me, absolutely not. I'm just a little bit down on the product in general. But let us know your thoughts underneath the link to this Twitter post. Um, at what culture WWE. It's always interested in hearing your thoughts. I think it's vital for us to know if we're on the pulse, which is ironic considering we talked about this earlier, or if we're just being a little bit too miserable. Try not to be a baby about it, um, because then we won't be able to completely dismiss your opinions. Arguing good faith. Yeah. And don't just go, wait, 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 it's still great, it's still great. Well, is it? Let's have some good faith discourse underneath the podcast link at what culture WWE. Whilst you're there, you can follow Michael Hamford at Michael Hamford. You can follow me at M Sidrick. We'll be back imminently um with the review of WWE SmackDown. And we'll also later on today in your feeds be previewing WWE Raw again. Thank you very much, sorry, for joining us. Um can- Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Continue to subscribe and subscribe if you haven't already. Again, look forward to some more content on your feed. And until then, we will see you soon.